If you do not have a study guide this morning, just raise a quick hand and some folks are getting the extras back to you. We're going to do that real quick and then we're going to pray together. We're going to ask the Lord to speak to us today through this passage of Scripture. And let's go ahead and do that now. And I'll say the same thing that Ryan said earlier. I'm not praying for us, but we are all entering in and we are bowing the knee and we are petitioning God to speak to us, Lord. Use your word in our life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we want to humble ourselves, God, as we approach your truth. And one of the things, Lord, that we want to confess to you often is that we have no wisdom apart from you, Lord. We have no understanding and no wisdom. We don't know how to go out and we don't know how to come in in this world unless you teach us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, you didn't have to speak to us and reveal your truth to us, Lord, but you did, God. In great love and great mercy and grace, you gave us your words and you had them recorded for us throughout history. And Lord, we gather around your word this morning and we ask you to meet us as we do that with the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that you would drive your word into our hearts. God, many times, Lord, you have done this week in and week out in our life as we gather together in your name. And we ask you to do it again, Lord, to be faithful to us, Lord, to be good to us, Lord, and to be gracious to us. And we ask you specifically today, Lord, that you would teach us how to think, Lord. Teach our sinful minds how to think and teach us how to walk through your world for your glory. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right, if you could go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 4. In the next two weeks, we will be finishing up our study of Colossians as a local church. So we've been in this book for several months. And if this is your first time or the first few times at Grace Community Church, we are committed to to walking through books of the Bible together, of picking up where we left off last week and and continuing on through books of Scripture. Uh, There are many reasons uh, uh, why we think that that is a, a really good idea of how to build a local church and how to feed disciples. But for today's purposes, I just want to tell you that, that the passage that we land on today is a little bit different. In fact, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, uh, well, I'll back it off just a little bit. You may never hear a sermon on these verses for the rest of your life, okay? For the rest of your life. This is not typically one of those places that you would dial into and zone in on. And for this reason, the next two weeks is going to be uh, two very different sermons than what you're used to um, at Grace Community Church. And, and the thing that's going to be different about them is they're going to be largely based off biographical studies as we zone in on just a few New Testament characters. And we're going to ask the Lord what, what He would have us to know and what He would remind us of, of their life. And the reason why we're going to do that is because we largely have a list of names. Um, we have a list of names before us as we finish um, the letter to the Colossians. And as I say that, some of us need a reminder. And I'm, I'm with you on this. We need a reminder because we're tempted as we come to places like this in Scripture 
the end of New Testament letters and certainly the beginning of New Testament letters, we're tempted to write them off too quickly as unimportant. But I'll remind us of this, 2 Timothy 3.16. We believe that, right? We believe that. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable. And so that means that we as a local church, we believe that there's nothing that's unimportant in all of sacred scripture. There's nothing insignificant in the Bible. And we want to take that mindset and that theology and that doctrine that we believe. And we want to lay it on this text of scripture. We want to come to it as humble disciples of Jesus Christ. And we want to say, Lord, speak to us. Tell us what I need to know from this passage of sacred scripture. So that's our aim today. Let's read our text together. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and we'll go through verse 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. This is God's word to this local church this morning. I hope you understand what I mean. Okay, This is not what we tend to think about when we think about high octane passages of scripture. He's just giving some data to us. Okay. But this is hot breath from the Holy Spirit. It's inspired from God and He has something to say to us from these words. And so the way I want us to dive into this passage this morning is I want to start um, giving us some background around this letter. And to do that, I want to zone in on what's happening in two ancient cities during this time period. And the first is Colossus. Colossae and the second is Rome. Colossae and Rome. And as I say that, I want you to hang with me on this introduction. It's going to be heavy on historical background, but I really think that this will be helpful for you of learning how to piece together different parts of the New Testament. There's some background here that's like a thread that ties a couple of books of Scripture together. So I want you to hang with me. I think this will help you. Turn back to chapter 1 in Colossians. Let's talk about what's happening in this little obscure city, this little obscure ancient city in the Roman Empire. We find out in chapter one that there's a minister that came to the city. His name is Epaphras, and he came to this ancient city probably 25 years after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and he came preaching the gospel to this uh, ancient city, Colossae. And Colossians chapter 1 tells us that as Epaphras came preaching that powerful gospel, something happened. Colossians chapter 1 verse 6 tells us that that powerful gospel in the mouth of Epaphras, it started, quote, bearing fruit and increasing. And this is what it always does. That's what it tells us in Colossians chapter 1. So how do we have a church here in the first place? And scripture answers that because a servant of Jesus Christ relocated himself with the gospel in his mouth and he began to announce the finished work of Jesus Christ and God bore witness to that gospel and it started bearing fruit and increasing. 
And in a lot of ways, that's pretty generic. And I say that because that's how every church starts. Every true church starts like that. that. Those are the core pieces that the Lord stirs up a disciple or a group of disciples. And they have the gospel of Jesus Christ and they relocate themselves to another place in this world. And they begin to announce it. And as they announce it, that gospel falls on some with ready ears. And the Lord visits the preaching of his word. And fast forward, you have a church, a group of people in that area that are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ that was not worshiping Christ before. And I say that as an encouragement to us and and specifically as an encouragement to our Peru team that we're about to send out as a local church. And we think about, well, what are you going to do when you get there, brother? What are you going to do when you get there, sister? What's your team building skills? What's your management strategy? What's your uh, vision, your core principles? And at the end of the day, after you strip back all of that, the simplicity of the mission of Jesus is this, that the Lord stirs up a disciple or a group of disciples. They have the gospel of Jesus in their heart and on their lips. They relocate to another place in this world and they begin to distribute that gospel and announce it over and over and over again. And that's how churches are started. That's how the mission is accomplished. That's how it it is pressed along in every generation. We can pray for them as a local church that they would faithfully do that. Okay, so this is how we have a church in this ancient city It's through the missionary labor of a man named Epaphras. So they're there. They're worshiping Jesus now. They weren't worshiping Jesus before. But as we study through this letter, we find out in that local church of Christ worshipers, we find out that all is not well in this local church, that there are some things that are happening in this local church that are that are a danger to this church. So listen to this. Colossians chapter two, verse four, we find out that someone is trying to delude these disciples with false teaching. They are trying to sway this church away from Jesus Christ. They're trying to sway them away from that gospel that they started off with. Epaphras gave them the real thing, the real deal. And all of a sudden this false teaching comes in as a seduction trying to sway these disciples away. Chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that these disciples were in danger of being taken captive, enslaved. By this false teaching. Specifically, it was called a Christless philosophy. Okay? That is a worldview that is Christless. Okay? And that's really the warning of Colossians to us as modern day disciples of Jesus. Anything that comes into the church that does not give Jesus the place of absolute supremacy, Christ above all, Christ over all things, is to be rejected. Not only is unhealthy, but as dangerous for us, dangerous for us. The moment we embrace anything that is Christless, and when I say Christless, it's not even good enough for Jesus to have second place, number two in the church. It's not even good enough for him to have number two. He must reign as sovereign over all, over all. He must be the constant emphasis, supreme in every way, in all of our thoughts and all of our living. And the moment we embrace any other mindset besides that is the beginning of the end of any local church. Okay, and so they're in danger of that. You have these Christless teachings that are trying to make their way in and Epaphras. Most likely this is what happened. Epaphras knows how dangerous this is. 
for a group of disciples, for a local church. And so he knows he needs some help. Things have gotten to a point in the city where he needs the help of the Apostle Paul. Well, the problem is he's about a thousand miles away. Okay. And so the historical background, here's what's going on. Epaphras sees these problems facing these people he loves and he leaves town to go get the help of the Apostle Paul who is in Rome. And he's actually in prison in Rome. He's in jail for the gospel, being persecuted for preaching Christ, but he's under what was called Roman house arrest. And so he's still able to do a limited amount of ministry in the city of Rome. Listen to this verse in Acts 28, verse 30. This is the description of Paul's house arrest. It says that he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So even as he awaits this trial and this judgment, he's getting the gospel out. Okay? And the, and the part that's helpful for us, this little historical background to weave some threads together in the New Testament, is that during this time in Rome, during this house arrest, Paul writes three inspired letters. We have them today. Still, still around, still bound together in our Bible. And the first is Colossians. So somebody gets there with news of what's happening in this city and he pins this letter out as a response to the dangers that they're facing. The second letter, if you fast forward in your New Testament, is a letter that we call Philemon. Okay, It's a little short Probably one page letter in your Bible. And this is a letter written to a man named Philemon. And it's specifically about the personal situation of a man named Onesimus. Okay. Sidebar that. We'll come back to that in a minute. Third letter that the Apostle Paul writes is the letter to the Ephesians. Just a couple of pages back in your New Testament. In fact, all three of these letters... Okay? Paul writes them out, and he hands all three of them to the same dude. Okay? We're going to talk about him in a minute. His name is Tychicus. So you have three inspired letters, pins them out, hands them to Tychicus, and it's now Tychicus' job to deliver each of these letters to their appropriate destination. One's going to Ephesus. Guess which one that is? Ephesians. Okay? Two are going to Colossae. No surprise, Colossians is one, but the second one is Philemon. It's going to the same place, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. This is about a very specific situation, uh, a hometown problem, so to speak. So you have Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. Listen to me. These are called the prison epistles of Paul, written at the same time during Paul's Roman imprisonment. They've been referred to as that for centuries, the prison epistles. This is why in um, Colossians and Ephesians, you have parallel passages almost all the way through dealing with the same concepts, just little tweak of language, prison epistles given to Tychicus. And then in Colossians, he has two aims as he has those letters in his hand. One of those letters is Colossians. And he has two aims as he heads towards this ancient city. And verse 7 tells us that he's supposed to relay Paul's situation in Rome. He's going to tell you how things are with us. 
And that's so the local church that loves Paul can pray for him. But look at that second aim in verse 7. As this man enters into this town, he is charged with giving encouragement to the hearts of these disciples. Okay? So, not only is he carrying an ancient letter filled with encouragement from the Holy Spirit, his personal charge, don't just, he's not like an ancient postman of, you know, I get to Colossae and I say, here you go, I did my job. He gets there and he's a laborer for Jesus Christ. He delivers that letter, but he's someone that can explain that letter, that can expound on that letter and encourage the people of God. And that's really what we've been doing as a local church. We've been giving attention to, in-depth attention to these themes, expounding these themes and in, in order to see what God would have for us. And his specific aim, look at that in verse 7, was to encourage the hearts of these disciples. Now I want to dig in right there for just a moment. Okay, I want to, uh, this is our first application of jumping from there to here. How can we be encouraged by just that one phrase? Okay, encouraging the hearts of God's people. Every one of us ought to have a heart to do that. I want to encourage my brothers and sisters. I want to encourage their heart. I want to see them go from here to here on the encouragement scale. I want them more encouraged in Jesus Christ. And I want to pause and I want to dig into something because I really believe that Colossians uh, has something very unique to show us about Christian encouragement. Okay, Colossians is uniquely suited to bring that encouragement about in the heart of a believer. And here's what I mean. It is in this letter, just a couple of chapters back, Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives us an insight into the human heart. That's us. Okay? And he tells us how we tick and how we work. And specifically, he tells us, this is true for every person in this room, he tells us how you receive encouragement. He defines for us in those verses what our main strategy ought to be as we lean into each other's life to do each other good, to help each other's souls, to help each other grow in Christ. I'm going to read these verses and I'll make a few comments. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged. Sound familiar? Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so what I want us to see in that is that Paul defines encouragement for us in Christocentric terms. Okay? Encouragement is about seeing something about Jesus Christ, about being reminded of something about Jesus Christ and his glory and his glorious work. So specifically look at that in verse two, being encouraged on the left hand is the same as having full assurance and knowledge of Christ on the right hand. They're synonymous. They're synonymous. Do you see that? What does it look like, according to that verse, to be encouraged? To have full assurance and knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Jesus Christ. And so think about that for a moment. Okay? 
At the end of the day, you can't have one without the other. How does encouragement come? It comes by my eyes and my heart being opened and reminded of something glorious about Jesus. It's Christocentric. It has something to do with Christ. That means that the main way that we encourage each other is not be a better Christian. Be a better Christian, brother. Be a better Christian, sister. That's not off the table. Okay? There are a lot of people that tell you that that's off the table. That's not off the table. It's just not the main thing. It's just not the main thing. That's not what we lean into and lead with. We lead with this glorious gospel, this glorious news about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we preach that to the lost world and we preach that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? We turn in the mirror in the morning. We preach that to ourselves. This is how we get encouragement. It's through being reminded of something about our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in a lot of ways, that's that's what the whole letter is given to us to produce. And so we've said this as far as content The main content of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. But what about intent? So you have content, you have words on the page, and we know what they mean, but why are they there? And this little phrase really answers that question. So that your heart would be encouraged, that you would have knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowledge of Jesus Christ. Experiential spiritual, increasing knowledge of Jesus. How do you know if you're studying Colossians profitably, appropriately? How do you know if you're receiving from the Holy Spirit what He would have for you as we give weeks and weeks of attention to this letter? Well, that's it. That's the vital sign. How encouraged are you in Jesus? How much, how, how, as we progress through this, how much more and more are you seeing of the glory of Jesus Christ? This is the main, main aim of the purpose, not only of this letter, sitting in the hands of this servant, but when he gets in town, that's what he's there for. He's not there mainly to distribute doctrine. He wants to see that doctrine do something in their life. He wants to encourage their hearts. And so the Lord sends an inspired letter. And the Lord sends one of his servants so that the people of God would be happy in Jesus, rejoicing in Jesus Christ, overwhelmed by the gospel. You could even say it like this, enthralled with the Savior, enthralled with the saving son of God. That is what the letter is to produce in us. That's how we know if we're understanding it rightly. And and think about it this way. Is there such thing as a believer who is seeing the glory of Christ, tasting the majesty of Jesus, that's not on the the other side of that coin, that's not encouraged. They go hand in hand. This This is how you tick. This is how you work. This is how all of us work. And once we see that, jumping into encouragement for Grace Community Church, as we lean into each other's lives to do each other good, that's what we lead out with of who, who, Uh, Christ is Christ in his glory and what he has accomplished on our behalf. This is how local churches have their hearts encouraged as they're reminded of something glorious about Christ. Once that is right, it touches thousands of other things in our life. And so think about that. Paul doesn't attack these false teachings directly. What does he do? He exalts the Lord Jesus. 
He exalts Him as the supreme one over all things. And so what, what can we learn about that? Is, is the disciple that has that heart full of encouragement, the disciple that has those eyes open to the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, that is the safest place that you could possibly be from false teaching, is in love with Christ, overwhelmed by what God has done for you in Jesus. And not only that, that is the safest place you can be from false living, from false living is overwhelmed with what the Son of God has accomplished for you. So there's something, there's something inspired. There's wisdom from God in the way that this is laid out and how we can apply it in our life. That this is what we lead with. This is our main message always. Not just to the lost world, but also to the people of God. This is how human hearts are encouraged. Alright, that was a side trip. Okay, back on task this morning. We're going to zone in on two people. In this paragraph, uh, Tychicus and then Onesimus. And in a lot of ways, I want you to think about as we walk through these names, this is putting flesh on these words that we've been studying. It's putting flesh on the letters. So we've been reading words and studying doctrines, but now we get a reminder, oh man, that, those doctrines actually change people's life. Oh man, those doctrines are actually shaped and molded in real human beings. It's not a subject that we just run off in our closet and study. This is reality. Okay, Colossians is a real letter written to a real local church. And we're going to zone in on two real disciples of Jesus. Let's start with Tychicus. I want you to ask this. Who is this man? Verse 7 very simply tells us this. He is a brother a minister and a servant. A brother who is loved by the church. He is a minister who is faithful to the mission. And he is a servant who is in Christ Jesus. So, he's not a prominent New Testament figure. Okay? In fact, if we gave you a piece of paper and a New Testament and say, read this and tell me the ten people that stick out to you the most. On nobody's list. Is his name. Okay? He is not a prominent New Testament figure. But look at those phrases. He is a faithful man of God. He's a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. And there are a few other references to this man in the New Testament. To Caicus. Uh, just a few. Okay? And these references, when they mention his name, it's almost like in passing. At the end of the sentence, oh yeah, he was there. Kind of a thing. And so as we place these um, references together. There's just a few things that we can put together about his life. Uh, he first shows up in Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is on a missionary journey and he's delivering aid to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 20, we find a group, a band of brothers following him, traveling along with the Apostle Paul. And Tychicus is one of them. So just in passing, like he was there. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 4, we find out he's a believer. He's accompanying the Apostle Paul. Gives us a little detail that he's from Asia. Uh, think about modern day Turkey. And so that's, in a, that's in about right the middle of the Apostle Paul's missionary career. And then Tychicus shows up on what is believed widely to be the last letter Paul wrote, 2 Timothy. Tychicus' name shows up again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. And just in passing, just in passing again, he, 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 he tells Timothy that Tychicus is doing gospel work in Ephesus. And then moves on to something else. 
So wasn't talk about him before, just a quick little phrase, and he shows up again, and then he moves on to something else. He's like a side note as you read the New Testament. And so try to put these things together. We get a quick picture of Tychicus in the middle of Paul's ministry and a quick picture of Tychicus at the very end of Paul's ministry. And just putting those things together is we have uh, not a famous servant of Jesus, but we have decades. We just jump decades with those two verses and we see him at the beginning and at the end serving Jesus Christ. And so he is a faithful servant of Jesus Christ for decades. He lays down his life for the mission of Christ. In fact, if you link the references to his name, here's a list of cities that, that the New Testament locates him in. Listen to this. He is said to be in Greece, in Macedonia, in Crete, in Ephesus, in Rome, and in Colossae. And that's impressive even for us. Okay? We say, where have you been for the gospel? And we might have been on one, two, three, four missions. Some of you have been on 15. Uh, but the, the steady state and the way that we think about it, that would even be um, uh, unique even in this local church. I've, I've taken the gospel to six, seven uh, different cities in this world. And then think about this. You, you go to those cities just in a loop and that's almost... You know, almost for sure is not how he did it back and forth going all over the place. But just in a loop, you're talking about thousands of miles just in the cities that the New Testament locates him in thousands of miles. Then jump. And that becomes much more impressive when we remember he did not drive there in his Toyota Camry. OK, he covers thousands of miles for Jesus Christ, pounding the pavement, faithful man of Jesus Following the mission of God for decades, for decades, okay? Servant of Christ, faithful servant of Christ. But here's where I believe that the lesson for us is found in this man's life, and it's not in any of those things. I believe the message for us and for this local church is found in his relative obscurity, okay? And the relative obscurity of this faithful servant of Jesus named Tychicus. He served Christ for decades, but he served in relative obscurity. You can say it this way. He had a long, faithful ministry, but he did not have a well-known ministry. Or you can say it like this. He was a faithful, fruitful disciple, but this man was not a famous disciple. He's not a prominent New Testament figure. We have no books that he wrote. We have no record of sermons that he preached. We have no comments in Scripture about any exceptional giftings of this man, like preaching or organization. We have nothing but his name, just in a couple of places. Okay, And so we see him as a faithful servant of Jesus, but in obscurity, in obscurity. Why do we have this man's name in this text? And why are we spending 15, 20 minutes talking about an obscure servant of Jesus? And the reminder to us and the place where I want, to, I want this to land on our hearts and on our minds today is I believe why we have his name and names like his in Scripture is that we need to be reminded, you can say it like this, that we're more like him than we are like Paul. 
We are more like Tychicus than we are like Paul. I think every one of us need this reminder. Okay, We have a strange tendency to locate ourselves in, in positions and places of prominence. And this even happens as we read the New Testament, right? Every one of us. Who, who has not done this? We're reading the stories of, of Peter and Paul uh, or, or of Jesus, uh, you know, some miracle that he does. And we're, we're always gravitate towards locating ourselves in these prominent characters in these New Testament stories. And we all do this, okay? Who among us has not um, drawn appropriate application in your life from Peter or Paul, okay? Um, or, or, even, or even Thomas, or even Judas. We do that. We get encouragement by doing that. But at the same breath, raise your hand if you have um, uh, thought much about uh, how the Apostle Bartholomew's life relates to yours. Okay? Obscurity. Obscure servant of Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded that we are more like them than we are like the prominent ones, the prominent ones. I want that. I want that to be pressed into our heart before we move to this next man this morning. We are more like the obscure servants of Jesus Christ than we are like the prominent ones. And a way to say that, just to drive that in, let's bust. Let's bust all of our bubbles at the same time. Okay, so we're all in the boat together. That. Almost certainly, you will not be famous for your work for Jesus Christ. Almost certainly. And we're all in the same boat. Okay, In an earthly sense, people are not going to know your name. In an earthly sense, you are not going to be remembered. This is not pessimism. Okay, uh, Maybe maybe one, maybe two. This is not pessimism. This is just reality. We're drinking reality when we say that. Okay, We're all in the boat together. You probably will not be known... For your labor for Jesus Christ. But even as we say that, that, that kind of pushes against us a little bit. That there's this, that there's this thing deeply, you know, deeply ingrained in our sinful nature. And I'm going to call it Christian pride. Christian pride. And even as I say that, I know that's a terrible name. That's an oxymoron. Okay? That's like saying Christian Islam. Okay? There's nothing that goes together about it. But I don't know any other way to say this. Okay? Christian pride, and all I mean by that is pride that wears an overtly Christian mask, okay? We have that deep in us. We have temptations to and forms of Christian pride, and this comes out in our ambitions to be known for our zeal for Jesus Christ, to be distinguished among other disciples for our labor for Jesus Christ, to be commended before others for our sacrifice for Jesus Christ. It pushes against that stuff, okay? And his life is going to do that this morning. That Christian pride, whatever it is and however it, it, it tends to manifest itself in your life, whatever it looks like, that mindset was pervasive among the 12 apostles. I mean, we see it popping up. Uh, several times in the Gospels. And, and Jesus walks in to these holy men and He says, what y'all talking about? And two, three, four different times in, 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 in the Gospels, we find that they're having a conversation of, you know, we, we're really just trying to sort out which one of us was the greatest. 
uh, we're just wanting to settle that on the front end because, you know, he thinks he's the greatest and everybody, you know, really deep down knows I'm the greatest. And that's what they're talking about. And Jesus busts up that conversation several times. And I'm calling that this morning Christian pride, Christian pride. And this is so important for Jesus Christ and so destructive in the church that one week before Jesus dies on his cross and ascends into the heavens and leaves this world, okay, one week before that, he puts a bullseye on this sin. And he wants to take them to school and he wants them to learn one time forever that you, you can't have anything to do with this stuff. Christian pride. I want us to turn this morning to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read this extended passage where Jesus deals with this longing for greatness. Longing for greatness. We're going to pick it up in verse 35. Let's read this together. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's backwards. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Translation, Jesus, I want to be a famous Christian. Jesus, I want to be commended above these other ten for what I've done for you. I want to be known for my zeal for you and for my labor for you. I want to be a famous Christian, Jesus. I want to sit at your right hand and my brother sit at your left hand. And let's see how he responds. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why? Because they want to step over their bodies to get to the top place in the kingdom of God. They want to outdo their brothers. And they're really angry about that. You want to step over me and make a name for yourself? Let's see how Jesus finishes this out. You know, he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the lesson that we learned from just that pivot back to that story, okay, is it is wrong. It is sinful for a Christian to daydream about Christian greatness, okay, in all of its forms, in overt forms, in all of its subtle forms. That is a sin to be repented of. And the reason that I say that is it's not just something that you need to be aware of. 
and keep a, keep a check on. It's something that you need to turn your back on and run from. It is a sin to be repented of. I don't want you to just be made aware of that. I want all of us to turn our back and flee from this. The heart to put this to death in us. This is what Jesus is pressing in to his disciples at the very end of his earthly ministry. It's a sin to be repented of, not just something to be made aware of. I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about from the life of Charles Spurgeon. Of, of what would it look like, be thinking of what would it look like for you to turn your back and, and walk out on these temptations and these sins to Christian greatness. Charles Spurgeon, almost, uh, almost exclusively known as the greatest preacher that the English world has ever known. Maybe not everybody, but hey, who agrees on everything? Okay? So almost exclusively, he is known as the greatest preacher ever in the English world. Not one day of seminary training. Not one hour of formal training for ministry. And he is known as the greatest preacher in the English world. He tells a story in his life of the Lord convicting him of this sin that we're talking about. Okay? This sin of Christian greatness and Christian pride. And just to, just to locate this story, you know, he starts preaching when he's 16, 17 years old in these country churches in England. And he's enjoying a little bit of fruit for his ministry. They call him the boy preacher. Okay? The boy preacher. But he's really not known in the major cities of England. Okay? His daddy's a preacher and his grandfather is a preacher. His grandfather's a prominent minister. And they see the giftings of Charles Spurgeon. But what they really want for him is they want uh, Charles Spurgeon to go into formal training for ministry. They want him to go into formal seminary training. And so what happens is his granddad pulls some strings. Okay, Being in ministry for decades, he knows some people and he pulls some strings. And he wants Charles Spurgeon to go to one of the, the most prestigious seminaries in London. And his granddad knows the principal and the head of that seminary. And so a meeting is set up. You have, you know, 17, 18 year old young man. And he has the opportunity to meet a famous Christian. Okay. That everybody knows his name. Everybody knows who he is. He leads one of the most prominent seminaries in London. And so they set the meeting up. Okay. Young Charles Spurgeon is going to meet um, this seminary president. And they're, they're going to meet at basically a mansion in Cambridge. I want you to listen to this story. Okay. Charles Spurgeon goes in the house, knocks at the door, goes in the house, and the maid of that house receives him in and ushers him into a room to the left of the front door. Charles Spurgeon sits down and he waits for the famous Christian to show up for about two hours. Two hours. At the end of two hours, he has a, a train to catch to get back home. and He's going to miss his train, so he's forced to leave. And on the way out of that house, he tells the maid, hey, I'm really sorry. Tell him I'm really sorry, but I couldn't wait any longer. I have to catch this train. And the maid, maid says, oh, I'm very sorry. I made, I made a, a, a big mistake. I didn't know y'all were here to see each other. And the maid receives the famous Christian in and shows him into a room to the right. So for two hours, they sat about 100 feet from each other. And they didn't even know that they were in the house. Okay. That's when people have houses way bigger than they should have when that could happen. But it happened. This is the story, okay? They're sitting several hundred feet away from each other, and he has to leave. 
And he's downcast, a little bit downcast that he didn't get to meet that famous Christian. He, met, he missed this great opportunity to enter into one of the most famous seminaries of his day. And he tells the story that as he meditated on that providence of God, that the Lord convicted him, pierced his heart with these words. This is from his biographer, Arnold Dallimore. He says this, There came an overwhelming impression on his mind. Almost as though he heard a voice that said, Do you seek great things for yourself? Question mark. Seek them not. This is what he heard that day as he meditated on this. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Those words are a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 5. And that day, the Holy Spirit pierced this young Charles Spurgeon's heart with conviction of sin. That he was seeking great things for himself. And the Lord's word to him that day was, don't do that. Seek them not. And that day, Charles Spurgeon repented of his selfish ambition. And never again did he seek to promote himself by being connected to famous Christians and prestigious institutions. He turned his back on that sin and he repented of it. Turned his back on it and repented of it. He ran from that sin. So the question I want to ask to us is, what does that look like in your life? Identifying these temptations of Christian pride is necessary, is necessary, but we have to take that a step further. What does it look like in your life uh, to take these temptations to Christian pride and turn your back on them? Where is it playing out in your life where you're fleeing from this stuff, intentionally running away from it? This is how dangerous it is. This is how we can be an encouragement to each other. Not just to be aware of it, but to go the opposite direction. Go the opposite direction. Or to say that another way, to get at the heart from another direction. Are you embracing obscurity in your Christian life? Not just are you okay with it. Not just are you okay with nobody ever knowing your name. But that you're more than okay with it. That Jesus Christ be glorified and me forgotten. Only Christ be exalted and shares His glory with no one. Are you feeling the reality of that in your heart? Of content to be obscure. Obscure. I think we would do a lot better if we daydreamed about how to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Instead of daydreaming about prominence and platform and recognition and more opportunity and more influence. We need to be happy for nobody to know our name. To not stand out in a crowd among other disciples. Christian pride. Happy to labor in obscurity. We need to take up that mindset that came out of the Moravian missionary movement. And here was the chant. Preach the gospel. Die and be forgotten. Preach the gospel. Die and be forgotten. And when that lands on us, that ought to be an encouragement to us of, yes, only Christ Jesus glorified. I want to be faithful to Christ. I want to die and I want his name to be remembered and not 
mind. Those who take that low road, these are the ones who bear fruit in eternity. These are the ones who mark history for the Lord Jesus. How do we know that? Because the Bible teaches us that God resists the proud. God actively resists the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. Those who take this low road bear eternal fruit for Jesus Christ. They may never be known in this world, but they're going to leave their mark on eternity. So think about Tychicus. Nobody reads the New Testament and does a character study on this man, but we're still talking about him right now. We're still reading his name. Pastor Ken Hughes says this about Tychicus, his humble labor. He said that that Tychicus delivered a letter that outlasted the entire Roman Empire. You, You hear that? The entire Roman Empire fell to the ground and this man's labor for Jesus is still leaving its mark. That ought to be an encouragement to every single one of us to embrace obscurity and to pursue faithfulness for Jesus Christ. I want us to quickly transition to Onesimus, a second character in this passage of Scripture. And really the mention of his name doesn't make any sense unless we know the background that I mentioned at the front end. Okay, Got to know some of this background to know why he's even showing up here. Verse 9 tells us two things about him. He's a believer, the brother, and he's a Colossian. He's a hometown brother. Okay, and That's really all we know. Until you jump to the letter of Philemon. And the, the letter of Philemon fills in a lot of gaps about what is going on with this man named Onesimus. And it tells us that he's got a shady background. He's got a shady story. It tells us that he was a slave. The letter of uh, Philemon tells us that he was a slave, belonged to a man named Philemon. And he tells us that this man broke Roman law and he ran away from his slave master and deserted. About a thousand miles away from the city of Colossae, he shows up in Rome where Paul was in prison for the gospel. And while Onesimus is in Rome, he's converted. We don't know the story of how, but we know, we, know, we know the New Testament. We know that he heard the message of Jesus. Holy Spirit drove it into his heart and made him a new man. And he became a believer in the city of Rome. Okay? And then Philemon tells us that, that as a new believer in the city of Rome, he becomes uh, uh, almost like a son to the Apostle Paul. Listen to how Paul says it in Philemon's verse 11. I'm sending him, that's Onesimus, back to you. And then he says, I'm sending my very heart. I'm sending my very heart back to you. So you have this deserted, uh, runaway slave, transformed by the gospel. And you have the apostle to the Gentiles saying, I'm sending my heart back to the city when I send this man Back to you. Paul sends him back to his slave master named Philemon, who is also a Christian, to make things right, to pursue reconciliation uh, for what has been done. And I want us to remember what I said about his shady past, his shady past. Prior to his conversion, Paul says in Philemon, and this is really strong language, okay, offensive language. In Philemon verse 11, Paul says that before his conversion, that Onesimus was useless. Useless. 
I want you to imagine somebody squaring you off in the face and saying, you are useless. Okay, it doesn't get more offensive than that, of cutting to the core of who somebody is. Now, I don't mean worthless vertically before God. That's not what he's saying there. But he means useless horizontally before man. This man was useless. He was a worthless human being in a horizontal sense. Okay, that means he was lazy. That means he was deceitful. That means that the man only cared about himself. Worthless, useless. Okay, he's a living picture of what we of that phrase we see mentioned a couple of times in the book of Proverbs, a sluggard. This is him, okay? Walking in the flesh, he is a sluggard. He is a useless sluggard in an earthly sense, good for nothing. You ever met anybody like that in your life? Okay? I'm not asking you worthless in a horizontal sense, that they're not an image bearer of God. That's not what I mean. Have you ever, in a horizontal sense, met a worthless human being? This is him. Okay? When you think about them, you need to think about Onesimus because that's who he was. A useless human being. But the letter tells us that this useless man was transformed by the gospel. And he became exceedingly useful in the mission of Christ. Listen to Philemon chapter 11. Paul says this, Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So a dramatic transformation has taken place in this man's life. And so that's really what we're supposed to see. That buried in this list of names, we read Onesimus and we're reminded that the gospel transforms sinners. What took him from useless to useful is the message of Jesus. So even in this little obscure story, we're reminded of the gospel's power to transform real human beings. And that's our takeaway from his life, that we as a local church and that we as disciples, that we would hunger and long to see this happen in this local church. That we would hunger to see that happen in our city. That we would see some useless men and women transformed by the power of the gospel. So I want you to think about this. I want you to drive this into your heart this morning. Okay? There are useless people in our city. I don't say that in a derogatory way. I really don't. I just mean in a sense to drive that in. There are useless men and women in our city. Useless druggies. Horizontally useless. There are useless criminals in our city. You have useless co-workers in your job. And your temptation is this. To write people like that off. That's what your temptation is. And this name in sacred scripture comes to you as an encouragement that that person that you tend to be so frustrated with, so tempted to write them off, the name of Onesimus is reminding you and reminding me today that the gospel can transform him. The gospel can transform her. Can take the useless one and make them exceedingly useful. Exceedingly useful. And not only that, look at what Paul says. I'm sending my heart to you. I'm sending my very heart. And so we don't just affirm that God can do that and we want to see him do that. We want to have that same mindset of Paul is when that happens, 
We don't hold people like that off to a distance, but we receive them to the very intimate places in our life. Those become our best friends in this world because they have been transformed by the gospel. And so I want you to think about that. A year from now, your closest sister in Christ or your closest brother in Christ could be a gangbanger in Jackson right now. That's how powerful the gospel is. That's the mindset that we need to have. That as the Lord Jesus does this in a local church, we receive them in to the very closest places in our life. The lesson of Onesimus is probably best summed up with this quote from C.T. Studd. Everything I've read by this guy, he's a stud. Okay? His last name just this is there for a reason. C.T. Stud. And he says this. I'm going to read this twice. Actually, I'm going to read this three times. And the last time, I want us to say this together as a local church. Here we go. He says, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. But I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I'll read that again. He says, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Let's say that together. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's the type of things that we think about when we think about Onesimus transformed by the gospel. We say amen to that, and we long to see God do that in our city and in this local church. And so we're closing. I'm going to ask the Lord to do that. I'm going to pray for us as a local church. I'm going to pray that we see fruit like that in our midst. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, we believe that you have inspired these words and given to us as a gift. And we ask for power from the Holy Spirit to apply these obscure words, to apply them to our very hearts, Lord. God, and I take that picture that we ended with and we bow to you as a local church. And we say, Lord Jesus, save us from becoming a civilian group of people. Marked by domestic concerns and civilian concerns. God, save us from that. That's where we'll go apart from your grace, apart from your help. And we pray that you would make us soldiers of Christ. Zealous to pursue your mission in our city. God, I pray that you would come against any and all manifestations of unbelief about what your gospel cannot do. Lord, remind us of your gospel's power to transform the human heart. And Lord, we beg you to let us see it. To let us see just, just a taste, Lord, of your powerful gospel so that we can praise and glorify your holy name that you are strong to save, that your arm is not too short. And so, Lord, we ask for that. We ask for that kind of fruit in our local church, that you would save those who are not like us, and that you would bring them in to the very, the very closest places in our family just to demonstrate how powerful your gospel is in our midst. Lord, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.